This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. When we talk about the femicides in Ciudad Juarez, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that for all the victims whose bodies were found viciously murdered, there were many, many more women and girls who were never located. We say that these women are disappeared. The word originated in Argentina during the country's dirty wars of the 1970s, referring to individuals who were literally disappeared by their government. Many of these disappeared women were undoubtedly victims of violence. Their brutalized bodies dumped on the outskirts of the city, waiting for someone to discover their bones in the desert. But it was also likely that a significant percentage of the disappeared women were sold into sexual slavery by Mexico's organized crime groups. For the families of these women and girls, the pain of losing a daughter is compounded by their new life in the not knowing, filled with unrealized but unquenchable hope, a daily struggle to banish waking nightmares of what was done or being done to their girls. One of the men who pioneered sex trafficking in Mexico was Amado Carrillo Fuentes, who had led the Juarez cartel since 1993. In July 1997, Carrillo Fuentes died in Mexico City during what was rumored to be a plastic surgery operation to hide his appearance from authorities. Ricardo Ainsley is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and the author of The Fight to Save Juarez. When Amado Carrillo Fuentes started becoming such a powerful presence in the organized drug trade in, in Mexico, he was very innovative and he created some distribution mechanisms flying a product from Colombia to the border on planes. And that made him an extremely successful businessman. During the golden years, shall we say, of the Juarez cartel, Juarez was actually a pretty safe city. Carrillo Fuentes and his people walked freely in the city. They were seen at restaurants. They had their families there. 
Back then, the Arellano Felix organization from Tijuana was a toll gate that controlled the drug smuggling routes in Southern California. It was founded by former Sinaloa police officer Miguel Arellano Felix Gallardo. They created the first drug trade organization in partnership with the Carrillo Fuentes brothers from Juarez, Chapo Guzman from Sinaloa, and the Gulf Cartel and Zetas from Tamaulipas. Together, they controlled the 2,000-mile border with the United States. By 1998, the Juarez Cartel was heavily involved in female sexual exploitation, along with the drug trade and human smuggling. Carrillo Fuentes, by that time, had secured the services, shall we say, of the municipal police as a kind of an armed wing. And so things were really under control for Carrillo Fuentes. The other uh, organized crime groups like the Sinaloa cartel, the Gulf cartel, and these other groups, there was a kind of a, a Pax Mafiosi, if you will. Everybody had their own lanes, and as long as you stayed in your lane, things were, were fine. If Sinaloa needed to move product through Juarez, Carrillo Fuentes got a piece of that. And that's also partly what made it a particularly um, uh, low-violence time. The Lord of the Skies, as Carrillo Fuentes became known, had been an important mediator between the competing interests of the four cartels and a vital liaison between these organized crime groups and the government. El Señor de los Cielos, quien formó un imperio traficando cocaína con sus aviones. Según la policía, fue asesinado por los médicos que lo operaban. Le aplicaron una dosis mortal de un anestésico. The drug lord's death would eventually spark a surge in violence in Juarez, as the seven hairs of his cartel fought viciously amongst themselves for control of the organization, while the Sinaloa Mafia began a war to gain territory in Chihuahua. Journalist Julian Cardona. Amado Carrillo's goal was to maintain a calm city because he knew that a drug dealer who is known by his name is a lost drug dealer. Drug dealers don't like violence. Why? Because it raises the amount they have to pay in protection money. When Amado Carrillo Fuentes died, we started to see unprecedented situations. Restaurant executions, intersection executions, and all kinds of people were executed, even veterinarians. The most unimaginable professions begin to appear in the crime reports. What was broken was this code of silence he had imposed to keep the city calm or with apparent tranquility. This is episode four of The Red Note, Hunting Monsters. My name is Lydia Cacho. 
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Six months after it was launched, the Special Task Force to investigate the femicides in Juarez was doing little to deflect criticism away from officials and their handling of the investigation. The unit had undergone a rapid turnover in leadership. Three successive special prosecutors had been appointed to lead the task force over six months with little progress to show for their work. Attorney General Arturo Chavez Chavez was under pressure to deliver results. In early 1998, Chavez Chavez reached out to a former FBI profiler, Robert Ressler, for assistance in the serial murders investigation. After two decades at the FBI, Ressler was a bona fide legend he had helped found the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit in the 1970s. Ressler interviewed dozens of serial killers, including Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy, and wrote several books based on these interviews. He literally invented the phrase serial killer. According to journalist Diana Washington Valdez. Former Governor Francisco Barrio, um, we were told by those, some people that were close to him, wanted to solve these murders. He wanted to get to the bottom of them. You know, this is, after all, he's the governor of a state that's getting constantly dragged into negative headlines and uh, given a black eye. And uh, they're concerned about hurting business and just the overall image and also that would reflect on you know, his ability to govern as well. So one of the things that was suggested to him by someone is that to call on a uh, profiler, uh, someone who's an expert whose uh, reputation is above reproach, since uh, you know, nobody was believing in his investigators anymore and he was having his own doubts. And so they uh, asked Robert Ressler to come in and do an assessment. Ressler reviewed the case files on the femicides and met with Chihuahua State Police to advise them on the investigation. He also traveled to El Paso, where Washington Valdez writes that he met with police officials to discuss the Juarez serial murders. Ressler was not asked to investigate, per se. He was uh, given case files to review and then to uh, present his uh, opinion over what he thought was going on, you know. And that is uh, basically the technique they use. These are the case files you can look at. Uh, you're not going to the crime scene. He did try to do some uh, ex you know, exploration on his own. He went to different places and people told him this is where they found bodies and blah, blah, blah. In June, Attorney General Chavez Chavez 
called a press conference where Ressler would present the results of his review. An individual, a shrewd, clever serial killer, uh, uh, taking advantage of crossing the border, doing his deed and coming back, uh, leaving no clues behind. It's just a very much of a reality, one that has to be considered. Ressler said that the killer or killers were probably male and Hispanic, which made it easier for them to blend in in Juarez. Oscar Mines wasn't so sure. Mines had resigned from his post as a forensic pathologist with the state attorney general's office in 1995 to pursue his master's degree in the United States. Two years later, Chihuahua officials asked Minas to return, this time as head of the state's forensics unit. Well, I'm originally from Ciudad Juarez. I went to get a master's degree, then I finished studying and came back. I got some job offers in Monterrey, but I'm from here, so I came to Ciudad Juarez precisely to restructure the expert analysis department of the prosecutor's office. Before he resigned, the Juarez criminologist had written his own profile of the potential serial killer that he thought might be on the loose in Juarez. But it was ignored by his supervisors. Ressler comes and tells us that the typical serial killer is a 20 to 22-year-old Anglo male. He didn't say that it was actually happening. He said it probably is an American who comes here to murder because the typical serial murderer has these characteristics, blah, 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 blah. Ressler's conclusion that a serial killer was crossing from the U.S. to commit the murders in Juarez was unlikely, Maynes felt. This idea that it's an outsider that commits these heinous crimes is reassuring for us as a society, isn't it? No, it wasn't someone from here. If you looked at the places where the bodies were found, it's someone who's connected to the city. Part of the problem was that authorities had only given Ressler restricted access to the pertinent case files and a translator designed to limit his access to dissenting voices in the city. He didn't speak Spanish, so they gave him a translator that wouldn't leave him alone. They were trying to prevent someone who was questioning the authorities from contacting him. They had him very isolated. He didn't go out in the field. He didn't analyze evidence or the bodies, no. I think Ressler came with the best of intentions to educate the authorities about the investigation of this kind of homicides, about profiles, etc. Unfortunately, he was used by the government to validate investigations that were done at the time. But I don't think he was aware of it. When I was in Juarez covering the femicides during the 1990s, we often notice groups of American soldiers and young men who crossed the border to have a crazy night. There were two important factors in the murder of women in Juarez that few investigators were considering at the time. 
the exponential growth of organized crime and the emergence of the domestic drug trade. The availability of liquor and prostitution in Juarez had been an important contributor to the city's growth during the first half of the 20th century. Until the city exploded with violence in 2007, Juarez remained a popular party spot for Americans crossing from El Paso. Back in the 90s, Ciudad Juarez ranked second in Mexico only to Tijuana in its number of illicit drug users. Not coincidentally, both were cities frequented by American men, including Marines and soldiers, looking for sex and drugs in what was called the Backyard of America, where nobody knew your name. Cheap drugs, lots of brothels, and a porous border helped. Partially due to the brothels in Juarez, over time, sex trafficking became an increasingly lucrative revenue stream for Mexico's drug cartels. Ricardo Ainsley says that in earlier periods, the other uh, drug cartels were not involved in kidnapping and they were not involved in human trafficking. Once one of the cartels realized the money they stood to make from trafficking in human beings, everybody else started doing it too. Because people started saying, hey, there's other ways to make money here that don't involve the same amount of risk. We can kidnap all we want, nothing's going to happen. Oh, that's a good way of making money. So let's add that. We'll start extorting businesses because that seems also very lucrative and nobody can touch us. Easy money. As Mexico's illegal sex trade grew, so too did the number of female victims who were disappeared from cities like Juarez. Jose Luis Castillo believes that his daughter, Esmeralda, was one of these victims. At the time my girl disappeared, she was 14 years old. I was working for the city in the transit control department, painting stripes on the street. It was May. Here on the border, the heat is very strong at that time. When we were working, a lady came out with a glass of iced water. I drank it and I got sick. The following Monday, Mr. Castillo was still feeling sick, so Esmeralda stayed home from school to take care of him. Tuesday came. On Tuesday, I was already not perfect, but much better. And I told my girl, go to school, my child. And she said, and who will take me, Dad? And I said, it's noon already. What could happen to you? People think that young girls disappear in the dead of night. And it's a very unfounded idea. Because girls disappear from 12 to 5 in the afternoon. Most of them. The highest rate of disappearances happens on Thursdays. Because when a girl goes missing on a Thursday, it's 48 hours to file a missing person report. After 48 hours, it's Saturday, and they don't work on Saturday and Sunday. 
criminals have for days to get the girls out of town or to do whatever they please with them. To this day, I regret having insisted on her going to school by herself. Since that day of May 19th at 12 o'clock, I haven't seen my Esmeralda again. More than 10 years after her disappearance, Mr. Castillo and his family are still searching for Esmeralda. We had to do many things. I lost my job. I lost my car. I lost everything I could sell. We saved 10% of all our income so that when we have to go looking for remains, we have money to perform these actions. At that time, my only food was a cola beverage or sweet bread in the morning and the same in the afternoon. Of course, my health worsened, my gastritis, colitis, and all that. Mr. Castillo eventually uncovered evidence that Esmeralda had been the victim of sex trafficking. We received a call once telling us that my daughter was being sold and prostituted at a place on Juarez Avenue. Just a few hundred feet from the border. I gave the picture to a lady who worked there and she told us that my Esmeralda came out of the storeroom and told her, I am the girl, I just wore different makeup and my hair looks different now, not like I'm portrayed there. Tell my dad to come save me. I was skeptical because I said, well, if Esmeralda is the one asking for help, why didn't she give her our home phone? Why didn't she give her our address? The woman told him. No, look, let me explain it. I was just showing the picture to my friends and uh, Esmeralda came out and told me that. But when Esmeralda was talking to me, the owner of the bar came out and took her to the storeroom and didn't let her finish talking to me. Not too long after that, she and two other girls came out and the only thing Esmeralda could tell me was, tell my dad they said they're taking us to Mexico City, La Merced, to sell our bodies for sex. And we quickly went to the prosecutor's office to tell them. And once again, we hit a wall when they told us, well, we are the state's prosecutor's office. We have nothing to do with Mexico City. They are very indifferent, very, very apathetic. It's like they have no feelings in the DA's office. And my wife said to me, what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to go and if necessary, I'll sleep under a bridge. My wife looked at me and said, no, we're both leaving. Let's go there and see how we can solve this. Well, we arrived in Mexico City. We would wrap ourselves in a blanket, 
and empty bottle of tequila on her body and just lay down outside bars when where there's prostitution. And the people from Capea approached us. That's the Mexican Federal Government Service Center for Missing or Absent People. And the, the investigative police of the state of Mexico, they asked me if I could help because they were too exposed. And that in the Condesa neighborhood, there was a place where they presumably pimped young girls to see if that's where my little girl was. When they raided the place, they burst in after we had spent four days outside. Three young girls were rescued, one from Chiapas and two from Oaxaca. Unfortunately, my girl wasn't, wasn't there. And we have, well, failed. We have demanded answers from the authorities. We have made our own investigations. We realized that wealthy characters here in the city have deep connections with human trafficking. We realized that the human trafficking network has an established route from here, from Juarez, Juarez, Mexico, Tijuana, San Diego, San Francisco, and then it vanishes. We have the theory that our daughters are taken to other countries from there. If there were no buyers for the girls, they would not be sold. Unfortunately, it's the second largest illegal business in profits for organized criminal groups. And all our authorities said to us was, stop already, you've already lost one daughter. You want to lose another one? As Mr. Castillo continued his investigations, he began to receive threatening calls at home. I wouldn't dare to repeat the words they say on the phone out of respect for the audience and yourselves, but they are indeed frightening. And hearing that sometimes discourages you. It sometimes makes fear creep into you. But then I talked to my kids and we said, no, they just want to shut me up because if they wanted to kill us, If they wanted to do something to us, they know exactly where we are and they could do it. All they want to do is to shut us up and make us give up on the fight. To tell you the truth, when I'm not being threatened at least twice a day, I think they're forgetting about me. That's why we're still here today. Uni Unida is a collective of student activists at the Autonomous University of Ciudad Juarez that was founded after the murder of one of their fellow students, Danal Lozano Chavez. Well, there are um, so many problems supported, of course, by the drug trafficking, right? By criminal organizations that, I mean, are backed by the state and and that 
apart from having society immersed in drugs or in the sale of drugs, well, there's there's also human trafficking, right? And there's how they kidnap girls from a young age and they, well, yes, they take them to different places to sell them. Who purchases those bodies? Who supports the existence of this market? The United States blames Mexico in its political discourse because, well, they say that drugs come from here. But our biggest consumer market is the United States. Most of the weapons that are sold here and used by the drug dealers are weapons that come from the United States. So they are also significantly responsible for the blood that has been shed on the streets of Mexico and specifically on this border in Ciudad Juarez. So yes, the United States bears much of the blame for the violence that exists here. On the campaign trail, pre-candidate Patricio Martinez promised that he could bring a halt to the violence in Juarez in one month if he were elected governor of Chihuahua. In 1998, voters swept Martinez into office with a mandate for change to stop the violence unleashed by the death of Amado Carrillo Fuentes and end the serial murders of women that had plagued Juarez over the past five years. After taking office that October, the new attorney general announced that Sully Ponce would take over the state's special task force for the investigation of crimes against women. She would be the fourth special prosecutor to lead the task force in under a year. Diana Washington Valdez. The Mexican authorities, uh, first of all, were certain that uh, by appointing a woman special prosecutor, that would help the image of the authorities because Sule Ponce would uh, be seen as someone who could uh, be, uh, who could identify more easily with the families of the victims. Ponce was a chain-smoking 34-year-old lawyer with bleached blonde hair who dressed in bright red, yellow, and blue Hillary Clinton-style power suits. Before she was appointed to the Femicide Task Force, Ponce had worked as a professor, an elections official, a public defender, and a magistrate. This would be her first job as a prosecutor. The office that Ponce stepped into that fall was also in a sorry state. Just a desk with a typewriter, a couple chairs, no phone, and no sign on the door. Journalist Lorena Figueroa says that before handing it over, the outgoing administration of Governor Francisco Barrio had cleaned out all the files related to the serial murders investigation. I believe that when they when Fiscalia was created and they took the files, they were like not even files. They were lost. Or just scattered, or just the investigation was just like a piece of paper with two names and that's it. 
On her first crime scene visit, a Washington Post article reported that Ponce was shocked, shocked to find cigarette butts and soda cans tossed inside the police tape. Photographers who repositioned a body to get a better shot and police officers walking carelessly over potential evidence. Ponce issued an order. All crime scenes needed to be secured to prevent contamination. She requisitioned more office space for the task force. She ordered computers and a state-of-the-art telephone system for investigators. And she tried to instill a more respectful attitude amongst her investigators towards the families of the female homicide victims. Many women in Juarez were optimistic that Ponce's appointment would bring progress in the femicide's investigation. But there were signs that the special prosecutor's promises of transformational change weren't all they were cracked up to be. Diana Washington Valdez. I have to laugh, but uh, she in time really became like a character, <laughs> a colorful one. She would use her staff to go on her personal errands, to go get the tortillas, go uh, pick up her kids from daycare. We went to her office one time, a photographer, and I think another reporter and I went there, and uh, we saw a telephone. We didn't see any case files. We didn't see anything that indicated anybody was investigating anything, their paperwork, you know, nothing. She was just sitting there and posing for the camera and, you know, telling jokes. And she used to go into the office and lay across her desk and um, just carry on, you know. I think that uh, she had uh, people at her disposal, staff at her disposal that she could have called on at any time. Uh, you don't have to be the expert, but you have to be smart enough to surround yourself with the right people. You know? So her staff, the ones that wanted to uh, work seriously, realized that um, she was not going to lead them in that direction. She was there basically as a figurehead. She quickly either caught on to that fact or knew ahead of time that she was going to operate as a figurehead for... I don't know, till things blow over. Activist and politician Vicky Caraveo. I had a big feud with Suli Ponce. We have several photos and videos in places where they found bodies. They're telling her a number of things about evidence that was found, and she, she's laughing. She has her arms like this, and she's like, ha, 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 ha. She wore heels this big. They sank in the dirt, and a miniskirt like this. I'm, I'm not against the miniskirt, and I'm not against the heels. I'm, she wasn't dressed appropriately to be able to walk calmly, check the facts, investigate, because you can't, it's too uncomfortable. The six-year term of Patricio Martinez was when we had more concessions, as you may remember. Even though they laughed at us and didn't take us into account, to kind of get us out of the way they would grant us, um, well, we had certain concessions. 
And that's where the idea of the special DA's office for crimes against women came from. We fought him for two years. He gave it to us with a desk, two chairs, a trash can, no phone, no stationery, an old typewriter, and no door sign. Oh, how hard it was for him to understand what we were asking. What we demanded out of pure justice. is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer, it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production bands were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinoza Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. We are joined now by Alicia Fernandez, our correspondent in Juarez, who conducted the interviews for this podcast. Alicia, do you have any memories that you can share with us about Americans crossing the border to visit Juarez? Yes. Before the war a few years ago, there were so many Americans coming to party in Juarez that actually there were some bars and clubs reserved just for them. 
There were spokesmen with bouncers outside the bars on Juarez Avenue saying, do you want to have fun? Check it out. If you did not speak English and show some dollars, you will not be allowed to come in. In Juarez, there have been brothels for any budget. You could find places with mature women, foreign women, or very young girls. In some of them, you could see regular sex workers or strippers working, maybe to feed their kids or to survive. But in other ones, you could see young women with people around taking care of them. And during the drug war, some of these places became crime scenes. Thank you, Alicia. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. <laughs> 